G'day and welcome to another episode of Sacred Cinema on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and this week's topic is Enemies of the State. the show you might be like you might be feeling like enemies again i feel like we're always talking about enemies you must have a lot of enemies out there jimmy no i don't really have any enemies i don't think but i think uh in a, in a democratic country we're always engaging in the kinds of political discourse that do often see us pointing fingers at particular individuals i mean the state has to run in such a way that we distinguish or discriminate between people that do certain things and people that do other things, right? Someone who goes out and murders a bunch of people is inevitably going to be an enemy of the state in a sense. Um, but obviously, we don't want people to be locked up for doing absolutely nothing. So I feel like we're constantly, as citizens of countries, constantly asking ourselves questions about, you know, who actually are the people that we're trying to target? Is it just terrorists? Is it just murderers? Or are we often indulging parts of ourselves that that mean that we use the state in ways that are a little bit more malevolent? And when we do that, when we interact with citizens or individual people, are we doing that in a humane way? Are we doing that in the way that our institutions were designed? You know, are we doing it in a way in which we are employing our institutions in a way that they were designed to be uh, employed? And using, you know, in saying all that stuff and using that kind of language, I'm using the word we when I describe the state. What actually is the state? Is there a separation between the state and individual people? And what are the what are the divisions within the state itself? These are sort of the questions that we're going to be addressing this week in, in all the films that we're going to be talking about. If you're new to the show, basically, we take a look at a couple of films and look at what sort of insights they might be able to provide us. How might they be able to serve us in our day-to-day lives, either on, either on a philosophical or an emotional or spiritual or sociocultural level? Um, obviously, we don't know exactly what the films are about. No one can ever actually know that. I don't think you have to be um, a hardcore postmodernist to accept that maybe some of these films could be interpreted all sorts of different ways. But the way that I've seen, uh, the way that I view each of the films we're going to talk about this way is, is, is this week is at least through this lens of seeing how individual citizens interact with the state when they are declared enemies of that state. Uh, and really, you know, going deeper than that and wondering, you know, where does the state start and end? And to what extent is an individual person the enemy of everybody, of the collective, or just specific people? And why specific people? How do those specific people view themselves as bureaucrats, as administers of justice. But before we, but in terms of, in, in, so that we can get into that, so we can start talking about the films, let's introduce them first. The first film we're going to talk about is Cool Hand Luke, starring Paul Newman from 1967. That one's directed by Stuart Rosenberg. We're then going to move on to a new release, which comes out in Dandy Cinemas this week. I had the pleasure of seeing this one uh, early. This one is The Conference uh, from 2022, of course, by Matty Geshonek. Uh, and then we're going to finish off with The People vs. Larry Flint from 1996, directed by, of course, Milos Foreman. It's another game for Milos. But let's start off now with Cool Hand Luke from 1967. And if you don't know much about this one, stars Paul Newman. He is Luke, Cool Hand Luke. Uh, and the, the first scene we see is this guy cutting off the tops of parking meters. Um, sort of the most basic act of... Re- and he sort of just waits there for the police to come to get him. Uh, sort of, so, so we start off this film with sort of the most basic act of rebellion against probably the most like... Um, 
you know, the most like fundamental act of the state, you know, p- people paying their dues in order to use public space. And he's just going, nope, not having any of that. And he just sort of takes down just these parking, or like or quite comedically, very laissez-faire, just sort of wants to have a very, um, very bland, very basic, uh, you know, wants to enact a very bland and, bland and basic uh, act against the state. Uh, so we get this, this very clear vision of what Paul Newman's character Luke is all about. And he's called Cool Hand Luke because he's, of course, a very charismatic, uh, starry-eyed young chap, very handsome man, uh, the young Paul Newman was, and very cool, calm, and collected throughout this film. In the, when he's playing cards, when he's playing, when he's gambling, anything, anything like that, uh, it's no, it's no sweat off his back. He's sort of figured himself out. It, it's this film sort of has the energy of a western in many ways, even though it isn't a western. Uh, but this guy is kind of the guy that you'd want in your posse. He, he, you'd want him next to you in, in. in um, in wartime, let's put it that way. Uh, so I guess the first thing we can say about a movie like this is that we do sort of have this, and, and you can sort of uh, register this in yourself when you watch a film like this, that we kind of, it does sort of seem that we do have this sort of natural predisposition uh, to, to love a rebel against the state. We kind of love, um, you know, a proletarian against a big, uh, massive um, hegemonic entity. We, li- we like the cool sort of guy that doesn't take take no sh from no one, if you get what I'm saying. Um, but I want to move into sort of more the the more needy gritty elements of this film in terms of how he relates to uh, the state or the personification of the state in this film. So I think this film sort of lifts up this really, it, it's hard to articulate, but it sort of lifts up this idea of the way that the state or, or a two-dimensional view of the state or a superficial view of the state, that kind of state sort of has this dependence on uh, coercive compliance. And that sort of seems like I'm, I'm speaking out of turn in a way, you know, given that this film is set in America, which isn't like, you know, uh, Taliban run Afghanistan. Uh, no offense to the Taliban, of course. Um, but it, it does sort of, you, you sort of do get this this idea of, the, of being damned if you do, damned if you don't, when you're in uh, Cool Hand Luke's position. What I mean by that is when he is sort of over compliant with what the prison guards want, that doesn't work out well for him. And of course, when he rebels against them, that doesn't work out either. Um, and so we see this play out particularly in, in with respect to his relationship um with boss godfrey who's sort of like the main prison guard he like runs the the prison in the film uh and he's best characterized by the fact that he doesn't talk the entire time which is sort of a perfect it has sort of a perfect uh, metaphorical value to it in that you know the state doesn't really talk to us it does see us it's sort of this um it, you know this film like works very well with like a foucauldian um analysis i don't want to get too much into that for the, for people that aren't familiar with um michel foucault but um you know the the whole idea of you know the citizen always being watched but not being not being able to see it the surveillance state obviously there's an Orwellian element to that as well uh, but Boss Godfrey sort of ha- is able to see everything that's going on but you don't hear him he doesn't actually say anything he's sort of got this this silent but deadly quality to him and and this motif of sight and who can see what and what can they actually see uh, also plays out. Um, through this this interesting metaphor of him always wearing sunglasses. And what happens to those sunglasses through the film is also kind of interesting, but we're going to park that for a second. Uh, I want to get d- distinctly into um, the uh, the actual moments of, of interaction between um, Cool Hand Luke and, and the guards, particularly Boss Godfrey. In terms of his overcompliance, it's a very famous tar scene where the, the – because all the prisoners are obviously working uh, for the state, you know, because they're prisoners and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, like, they're kind of like slaves essentially um, – there's this scene where they're having to put tar on a road in the middle of the summer heat. And, you know, on paper, that seems like a horrible thing to do. But what 
Luke figures out is that, you know, if he can get the guys, you know, he's such a cool guy. All the boys love him, you know. Uh, and he's like, if I can inspire the guys to sort of pick up the pace and, and actually enjoy this, you know, enjoy the camaraderie and the solidarity and things like that, we can actually sort of like have fun doing it. And you have the uh, shout out to the Channel 9 News, by the way, which is the, the, the music from this scene has actually been used in the uh, Channel 9 News bulletins um, over the years. Uh, but, the, the, you know, everything, the, the tempo picks up and all the guys really enjoy it and they start throwing the tar on all this. I don't really understand how you put tire on a road. Um, but essentially, this this sort of picks up the pace and they start to sort of embrace their imprisonment in a way. Um, so as to say metaphorically that they, they're sort of liberating themselves by being over-compliant. Um, you know, no one's telling them they have to enjoy it. So they sort of rebel with that idea, you know, that they actually begin to enjoy what they're doing. And while they're, they're physically imprisoned, uh, the enjoyment and the joy that they get from, um, you know, over-complying or just engaging in sort of a a recreational activity or, or turning work into this recreational activity, they are sort of liberated in that sense. And if you think about, you know, think about yourself having, a, you know, a fun time at school, for example. I mean, you're essentially physically imprisoned, but you have some great times in the schoolyard, right? You, it, it does sort of, you know, you, your own liberation is very often, um, you know, you're your own, you know, you are your own um, obstacle in the way of your own liberation sometimes, or at least you can give yourself uh, that illusion. Uh, um, but what's really interesting about this scene is what happens afterwards which is that that luke is pretty much like he's quite well liked by all the guards for the most part like he, he, you know, he gets on fine uh and previous to this scene he gets in this boxing uh match with one of the sort of the big heftier one of the bigger heftier guys in the in the prison and and this and and, and the, the guards are okay with it so, you know they're okay with the prisoners beating each other up they like turning themselves on each other uh, it's when they band together that, that, that the problem arises despite the fact that that shouldn't really have any there shouldn't really be any issues with that really like prisoners get along with each other shouldn't on paper have any problems but after this tar scene when paul sort of brings everyone together luke brings everyone together uh that's the first point at which he has to go into the box right this is the point at which and you know this film this goes so well with like the great escape and and of course one flew over the cuckoo's nest and you know milos foreman who we're going to talk about another one of these films later on these films could all be done together but um uh, he gets put in the box just like steve mcqueen in the great escape and this is the point where he begins to rebel that sort of fuels the fire for him to leave uh, and of course when he starts rebelling obviously they don't like that either so he's sort of damned if he does damned if he doesn't so so why this this coercion Coercive um, compliance. Why is that the way that this prison is run? Well, I think that's best sort of understood through this metaphor of the sunglasses that Boss Godfrey wears. Of course, Boss Godfrey, God, you know, he's the overseeing one. Uh, the way, the reason why it's this sense of coercive compliance, I suppose, is because. These sunglasses, it's, it's the means through which Boss Godfrey, he's, he's allowed to see through what is blinding. Let's put it that way. You know, when we wear sunglasses, it means we can see despite that we have, there's, there's a very obvious blinding force, which is sunlight, um, that would otherwise be blinding us. So I, I suppose in a way you could say that it symbolizes his restraint or um, being able to look past the fact that these prisoners are human beings uh, and that he actually owes a duty to them uh, as, as a member of the state, as a representative of the state. He actually does have, have, to, have to have society's um, interests uh uh, he has to have society's, you know, he has to benefit society in some way. But that's a very hard thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to do. So the, he sort of, it sort of requires that that sort of leads him to be coercive. But also, he can't have a group of rebellious people. So he's he's sort of blinded. He's otherwise blinded by this sort of sense of inhumanity that he would, that he would otherwise have to accept about himself. But he's able to sort of use this tinted veil. 
which is the sunglasses, to, to sort of rationalize for himself why he does what he does and why he can go home every night and, and, and you know, and go to sleep and not feel like a terrible person. So he sort of has this sort of, he sort of has this ignorance towards the harsh, um, sunny, hot truth of it all, uh, but he's still all seeing, right? He's still able to see and survey uh, the ground in front of him and all the prisoners, but he is purely ignorant of you know the, the you know of Luke's blinding light the fact that he is actually at his core a uh, genuinely um you know I, I guess in a, in a very sort of reductionist sense a good person you know he's a person that you know embraces in brotherhood and wants these uh, fellow his fellow prisoners to enjoy their life uh, and and even you know w- within the, the context of a prison uh, to find some sense of fulfillment in that uh, it's almost as if if boss Gosfrey was to accept that he wouldn't be able to live with himself uh, and when he sort of and I don't want to give the the, the ending away if you haven't seen the film, but I suppose in being overexploitative, in going too far, uh, in sort of overly fetishizing that power trip that Boss Godfrey is on, uh, that ultimately is the means through which um, that that veil is shattered, that he actually does have to admit the fact that, you know, admit who he truly is. Um, but if there's a one flaw to this film, it's, I suppose that it's a very sort of caricaturistic, metaphorical version of the state. And that works. I mean, it's important to have these kind of archetypal, uh, metaphorical, symbolic characters in films because they allow us to see things in a way which is more conceptual and abstract but can we get, can we go into an example now which sort of still gives the state this quality of being cruel and harsh and inhumane but it's a little bit more realistic and, and maybe uh, and it's no longer not so much archetypal and symbolically um, profound but perhaps a little bit more relatable uh, but before we do that just a reminder that you are listening to Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM People Powered Radio I'm your host Jimmy Bernasconi for this half hour uh, and we are talking enemies of the state uh, stay tuned for more quality radio content after the show uh, and jump onto our website if you're not on there already to subscribe to the station or sponsor the show uh, or, NF2, or any of 2XX's uh, wonderful programs here. Um, but let's move on now to The Conference. This is the new release from 2022, directed by Marty uh, Geshonek. And uh, this one is essentially, I mean, it, there's not there's not too many bells and whistles in terms of uh, flashy special effects or anything in this one. This is pretty much straight up. Uh, it's a bit like a play. Um uh, this is very slice of life. It essentially uh, retells what would have happened during the formulation uh, of the final solution back in uh, the Second World War, and, and essentially we see behind, you know, behind the, you know, much of the transcript of what actually took place during this conference when they, uh, when the Nazis came up with the final solution, um, is used in this film, and we, we, this sort of allows us to to get to know the enemy, and in this case, the enemy is actually the state, and then the and the enemy of the state in this case. Uh, is the Jewish population of of, of Germany and, and and wider Europe as it, it comes to be known as you see this film, and I want to look at this sort of in the context of this 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 issue of 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 underestimating the state uh, because when we're talking about Cool Hand Luke and we talk about uh, Boss Godfrey we can sort of make him a bit of a caricature and sort of underrate the state in a way and say it's sort of this simplistic coercive entity that's two dimensional and superficial and we should just hate it all the time and I'm not saying we shouldn't hate the, the Third Reich by any means uh, but it's not as simple as it being this sort of two dimensional entity I think what it the the power of this film and sort of maybe what the intended purpose of it was 
to is to um, not see it as a sim- not to see what the final solution was as this very simplistic formulation, but something that was extremely complex and formulated by people who were um, I don't mean to say extremely intelligent, uh, but engaged in a great deal of rational um, or what they deemed to be I mean rational in that philosophical sense, not in a in a, in a objective sense, but what they, they they thought that they were exercising a great deal of complex rationality uh, to come up with what they were thinking, um, which is a very important thing for us to do so we don't repeat that sort of thing. But I'll get into that in just a moment. The, the first thing I want to sort of say about the film is that it gives off, you know, the the, the, the initial super, uh, superficial imagery, just like sort of what you see on screen, already gives off this sort of, this element of sort of sophistication and um, society. Um, you know, obviously people know the Nazis have been people who had, you know, very uh, tidy uniforms and well-designed uniforms and that sort of thing. But the buildings that they the building that they had this conference in is you know, it's this architecturally complex building and it looks like something that, you know, this, uh, something that a very clever architect would have designed and, you know, they've all got pens and notepads and there's desks and chairs. It's not like they're just sitting around in the dirt planning uh, some kind of like terrorist attack. Uh, this is a very, uh, very much formulated um, and deliberate uh, conference that's taking place. There's even like this interesting little uh, bit of dialogue at the start of the film where they talk about washing their clothes and like there's a little bit of a back and forth about who was meant to do it and how they're meant to do it. like they're very meticulous and everything's very well thought out and also this this concept of washing and purification and doing that is obviously a bit of a motif throughout um, you know this whole thing but um, uh, that's neither here nor there for the purpose of today's conversation because I want to get more into the nitty gritty of the bureaucracy so I think one of the really interesting takeaways for me is how how detailed they were and what they did um, when they came up with the final solution. Um, when you when you think about it, when you, when you learn about this sort of stuff in like the history class in history class in high school, you kind of think they were a bunch of madmen. They were just psychotic and just wanted to you know you know just just kill a bunch of people. And that's not necessarily untrue. Uh, but but it, there was such a great deal of logistical complexity that went into what actually happened, um, down to how many trains were going from which city to where. Um, you know, and thinking about the way in which um, the the Nazis would kill uh, the Jewish population, they you know they 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 mathematically figured out how many specific bullets and how many more bullets they would need for this war front and and all that sort of thing. Um, that they thought about the specific geography of Europe and where best to place particular you know places of execution and and you know which people from what country should go where and all that sort of thing and even sort of which you know which people from what country were they actually even targeting and, and the degree to which they were actually uh, relevant to their overall scheme and, and in that conversation they talk about you know, the, the the biological questions that 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 they. Um, addressed when they were coming up with this thing, uh, again, was very specific and, and there was a great deal of debate. Uh, and I think what's sort of central and why it's probably called the conference is that, you know, this wasn't just Hitler's plan. It wasn't just the whim of just one singular guy going crazy. This was like a, a vast amount of different people, different minds, um, throwing ideas against each other, trying to, you know, really thinking that they were coming up with an extremely complicated pyramid. Um, you know, it's sort of like an intellectually robust uh, construct of of how to actually deal with this this problem that they that they deem to be a problem and in all this nitty gritty decision making, they they even, I mean, I couldn't believe it myself in a way, and and I was ashamed to, to not have thought of this um, myself, you know, uh, thinking back to the Second World War and the, what the Nazis did and everything like that. But they actually did consider 
the humanity and the morality of all this stuff and, and not necessarily in the ways that they even thought that they would. Like there's a great deal of debate about um, the morality and the humanity of and they keep sort of second guessing whether each other are actually committed to the cause. Uh, and the truth is that, you know, they're, they're all they're saying, no, 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 you're, you're, getting, you're getting me wrong. Uh, I don't care about them. I care more about our boys and how they're going to find this. And, 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 and it, it sort of shatters this illusion of psychopathy. And really, all these characters, all these people actually did still have, as, as, as scary as it is, did still have a grasp of humanity and morality. It's just that it was applied in this way that we've talked about before on the show. Um, we talked about it when we talked about the, the film Snowtown. We did that week on Killers. And it's not that there was a lack of morality as much. It was sort of an extreme version of morality, right? And like an extremist sense of moral rationalism, which is, you know, the, 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 the Nazis in this film, they talk about how they've been provoked by the Jewish population of Europe. And they talk about the fact that what they're doing is acting out of self-defense. Fence. And you know, while they all have, they actually a lot of them do have reservations about what's happening. They say, "Well, we have to sort of think mind over matter here, guys. We have to think about you know, think about how many of our people will be killed through this conspiracy that's taking place." So, I think one of the main takeaways and, and what's so powerful and important about this film is that 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 that, it, that it's not about it's not by no means trying to justify the actions of what the Nazis did, but it does, as I've said it a couple of times, it does sort of shatter this illusion of psychopathy. And draws people's attention to modern bureaucracy or modern organization, which is that just because a bunch of people in suits might be sitting around a table or sitting in a fancy room in, in you know, a boardroom or a university or something like that, just because they, you know, just because things are written in Times New Roman. I remember I heard that at university. It's always start, sat with me. But just because things look formal and that smart people are doing them doesn't mean that they must necessarily be morally good things. And that I think that works for both sides of politics, where we can talk about, you know, a Wall Street bo uh, boardroom and, and the sort of things that people in those rooms might talk themselves into and rationalize to themselves through a great deal of intellect, but but nonetheless be acting in a way that isn't necessarily objectively correct. But you could say the same about people on the other side of politics, you know, believing that there's a sense of, there's always, you know, they always have good intentions, that there's you know, a great deal of intellectualism that goes into what they do. Uh, but just because you have good intentions, just because you've read a bunch of books. I mean, so did so did a lot of the Nazis. They read a lot. They played Beethoven. They were they were very, you know they were they were very much for their time very intelligent people for their time. But that didn't mean that they knew what they were doing all the time. And every time they they sought out an enemy, they were going after the right person, or at least uh, you know looking back in history, we can be sure of that. We can be sure of that now. But at the time, they really believed what they were doing was an intelligent thing to do. They weren't just acting as psychopaths. So how can we identify that what they're doing? What 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 we might be doing or what a person might be doing might actually be psychopathic um, or, or crazy or morally wrong or something that we don't actually want uh, to see we, or something that we won't want to see through um, through you know in, in hindsight well this is a very difficult question I think um, to answer and, and that's going to sort of become more uh, illuminated in this third and final film we're going to talk about and this is the people versus Larry Flint directed by Milos Forman. Now, if Mr. Forman is listening to this, I'm actually going to sort of break this film down in a way that, that it probably wasn't intended to be broken down in. But I, but going back to watch this film now in 2022, this is a film that came out in 1996, I think this film really does a great job in dismantling this dichotomy of enemies and states or individuals and the state um, or, or the, you know, the, 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 the entity that we consider to be government and, and individual citizens. 
So I, I think one of the questions you can ask yourself when you watch a movie like this is, who is the enemy in this film and what is the state? So so the obvious enemy is Larry Flint. And if you don't know who Larry Flint is, he was the guy that ran Hustler magazine, which was one of the first magazines. It was after Playboy, but it was one of the first magazines that had nude women in it. And he got sued a bunch of times. And, and the, the film basically um, details all the times he was in court. And it wasn't just for Hustler magazine. He was in there for all sorts of different reasons over the years. And they, they vary uh, greatly. Sort of, sort of tracks his life and his his relationship with the law, I suppose. Uh, so, in one sense, he is the enemy uh, because he's very often the defendant in these in these um, in these cases. And you know, he's he's publishing pornography. Um, he, you know, he's he was addicted to drugs for a lot of that time for, for all sorts of reasons. He was a bit of a party boy, and just on like a like from a modern perspective, he was a, he was actually quite a violent person as well. There's a scene where he actually hits his wife, uh, and I think in the context of the film, it's sort of like, well, you know, that's who he was, and we have to get to know him, but like. I, I, I think sort of in this post-Me Too era, um, you, we would sort of turn on this film and this would be one of those ones where someone might say from modern context in, in their blog or something like, you know, like there are parts of this film that I would change if it was made today. But I mean, it's meant to be about who he was as a person. So I think it's actually quite nourishing to ask yourself that question and just accept that as as part of the film. And that's just what, you know, that's just who he was. And and sort of the other side of that is obviously though, and this is sort of probably the more um, deliberate intention of, of Foreman in the film is that um, the film is meant to sort of show him as a modern day hero of freedom of speech. You know, you don't actually have to like who he is, but you, but you know, thank goodness that he sort of, as he puts it, sort of took the bullet for everyone, uh, and, and and sort of meant that there was these, these, there's now precedence and uh, for people to sort of express themselves in ways that they, as individuals, deem to be uh, the way that they want to express themselves, despite the, their views and what they want to express being something that's a little bit unpopular. And you know, we all take that for granted, and, and he's a hero in that sense. But let's go to the other side of things as well. Who is actually the state in this film? Because it's called The People versus Larry Flint. Now, if you know your legal theory, you know that the people is a term that's used um, in American criminal proceedings. Um, and there's actually, I, I, when I was reading, researching this this week, there's actually some really cool stuff on the internet about people, um, uh, people sort of actually wanting to dismantle the idea of calling it the people for sort of the very reason we're about to... Um, address now uh, but these are all civil cases so none of the none of these cases were actually called the people versus Larry Flint they're all like Jones versus Larry Flint or Johnson versus Larry Flint um, but the reason Foreman calls it that is because sort of the the effect of all these different individuals all these different groups of US citizens always taking him to court and being taken to court from him sort of has the overall effect of Larry Flint constantly being put through the courts by the people by the United States but being realistic about the whole thing these were just individual citizens. They, these people were you and me, right? Or were they? Right? These were also other I mean, well, I'm not an American citizen, but these are just other individuals in uh, society that are trying to access justice, who are trying to administer justice. So I think what's really powerful about this film is it sort of creates this sort of very murky understanding of what actually the enemy and what the actual state is. The state is a collective of individual people. Right, who who elect uh, their representatives, particularly in a democracy like the United States. Yet we still have this impression that the state is this sort of monolithic entity that is separate from us. But we can, as individual people, draw people into our own problems. We we can take people to court. We can use the institutions uh, that make up the state against a person. So I suppose drawing everything together, we do have to be aware that the state sort of seeks a certain kind of compliance. Uh, by denying certain truths and and seeing what it wants to see, but 
The state is no slouch, right? It very often draws on a great deal of human intellect and intelligence when making what may be morally corrupt decisions. And what's worse, what's even worse than that is the fact that what the state actually is, is very often us, the people, the very thing that we hope to protect and serve. And very often when we do try to protect and serve ourselves, we are using institutions of the state to do that. It's all very paradoxical. So I suppose in knowing the danger of the state, maybe we need to identify what it actually is first before we can be really sure of who its enemies are and who our enemies truly are. Well, that's it for Sacred Cinema this week on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi. Please stay tuned for more quality radio programming coming right up here on 2XX. Uh, but if you're on our website or if you're not, jump on right now if it's safe to do so and subscribe to the station or consider sponsoring the show. We would appreciate all of that. Get in touch with me as well on all the socials. And until next time, get to the movies and I'll see you again very soon. Cheers. Cheers.